Chapter Fifteen of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Fifteen. And out in the jungle, far away, Korak, covered with wounds, stiff with clotted blood, burning with rage and sorrow, swung back upon the trail of the great baboons. He had not found them where he had last seen them, nor in any of their usual haunts but he sought them along the well-marked spoor they had left behind them, and at last he overtook them. When first he came upon them they were moving slowly but steadily southward in one of those periodic migrations, the reasons for which the baboon himself is best able to explain. At sight of the white warrior who came upon them from downwind, the herd halted in response to the warning cry of the sentinel that had discovered him. There was much growling and muttering, much stiff-legged circling on the part of the bulls. The mothers, in nervous, high-pitched tones, called their young to their sides, and with them moved to safety behind their lords and masters. Korak called aloud to the king, who, at the familiar voice, advanced slowly, warily, and still stiff-legged. He must have the confirmatory evidence of his nose before venturing to reply too implicitly upon the testimony of his ears and eyes. Korak stood perfectly still. To have advanced, then, might have precipitated an immediate attack, or as easily a panic of flight. Wild beasts are creatures of nerves. It is a relatively simple thing to throw them into a species of hysteria which may induce either a mania for murder or symptoms of apparent abject cowardice. It is a question, however, if a wild animal ever is actually a coward. The king baboon approached Korak. He walked around him in an ever-decreasing circle, growling, grunting, sniffing. Korak spoke to him. "'I am Korak,' he said. "'I opened the cage that held you. I saved you from the Tarmangani. I am Korak, the killer. I am your friend.' "'Ah,' grunted the king. "'Yes, you are Korak. My ears told me that you were Korak. My eyes told me that you were Korak.' Now my nose tells me that you are Korak. My nose is never wrong. I am your friend. Come, we shall hunt together. Korak cannot hunt now, replied the ape-man. The Gomangani have stolen Miriam. They have tied her in their village. They will not let her go. Korak alone was unable to set her free. Korak set you free. Now will you bring your people and set Korak's Miriam free? The Gomangani have many sharp sticks which they throw. They pierce the bodies of my people. They kill us. The Gomangani are bad people. They will kill us all if we enter their village. The Tarmangani have sticks that make a loud noise and kill at a great distance, replied Korak. They had these when Korak set you free from their trap. If Korak had run away from them, you would now be a prisoner among the Tarmangani. The baboon scratched his head. In a rough circle about him and the ape-man squatted the bulls of his herd. They blinked their eyes, shouldered one another about for more advantageous positions, scratched in the rotting vegetation upon the chance of unearthing a toothsome worm, or sat listlessly eyeing their king and the strange Mangani, who called himself thus, but who more closely resembled the hated Tarmangani. The king looked at some of the older of his subjects, as though inviting suggestion. "'We are too few,' grunted one. 
"'There are the baboons of the hill country,' suggested another. "'They are as many as the leaves of the forest. "'They too hate the Gomangani. "'They love to fight. "'They are very savage. "'Let us ask them to accompany us. "'Then can we kill all the Gomangani in the jungle?' "'He rose and growled horribly, bristling his stiff hair. "'That is the way to talk,' cried the killer. "'But we do not need the baboons of the hill country. "'We are enough. "'It will take a long time to fetch them.' Miriam may be dead and eaten before we could free her. Let us set out at once for the village of the Gomangani. If we travel very fast, it will not take long to reach it. Then all at the same time we can charge into the village, growling and barking. The Gomangani will be very frightened and will run away. While they are gone, we can seize Miriam and carry her off. We do not have to kill or be killed. All that Korak wishes is his Miriam." "'We are too few,' croaked the old ape again. "'Yes, we are too few,' echoed others. Korak could not persuade them. They would help him gladly, but they must do it their own way, and that meant enlisting the services of their kinsmen and allies of the hill country. So Korak was forced to give in. All he could do for the present was to urge them to haste, and at his suggestion the king baboon with a dozen of his mightiest bulls agreed to go to the hill country with Korak, leaving the balance of the herd behind. Once enlisted in the adventure, the baboons became quite enthusiastic about it. The delegation set off immediately. They traveled swiftly, but the ape-man found no difficulty in keeping up with them. They made a tremendous racket as they passed through the trees in an endeavor to suggest to enemies in their front that a great herd was approaching, for when the baboons travel in large number there is no jungle creature who cares to molest them. When the nature of the country required much travel upon the level and the distance between trees was great, they moved silently, knowing that the lion and the leopard would not be fooled by noise when they could see plainly for themselves that only a handful of baboons were on the trail. For two days the party raced through the savage country, passing out of the dense jungle into an open plain, and across this to timbered mountain slopes. Here Korak never before had been. It was a new country to him, and the change from the monotony of the circumscribed view in the jungle was pleasing. But he had little desire to enjoy the beauties of nature at this time. Miriam, his Miriam, was in danger. Until she was freed and returned to him, he had little thought for aught else. Once in the forest that clothed the mountain slopes, the baboons advanced more slowly. Constantly they gave tongue to a plaintive note of calling, then would follow silence while they listened. At last, faintly, from the distance straight ahead came an answer. The baboons continued to travel in the direction of the voices that floated through the forest to them in the intervals of their own silence. Thus calling and listening they came closer to their kinsmen, who, it was evident to Korak, were coming to meet them in great numbers. But when at last the baboons of the hill country came in view, the ape-man was staggered at the reality that broke upon his vision. What appeared a solid wall of huge baboons rose from the ground through the branches of the trees to the loftiest terrace to which they dared entrust their weight. Slowly they were approaching, voicing their weird, plaintive call, and behind them, as far as Korak's eyes could pierce the verdure, rose solid walls of their fellows, treading close upon their heels. 
There were thousands of them. The ape-man could not but think of the fate of his little party should some untoward incident arouse even momentarily the rage of fear of a single one of all these thousands. But nothing such befell. The two kings approached one another, as was their custom, with much sniffing and bristling. They satisfied themselves of each other's identity. Then each scratched the other's back. After a moment they spoke together. Korak's friend explained the nature of their visit, and for the first time Korak showed himself. He had been hiding behind a bush. The excitement among the hill baboons was intense at sight of him. For a moment Korak feared that he should be torn to pieces, but his fear was for Miriam. Should he die, there would be none to succor her. The two kings, however, managed to quiet the multitude, and Korak was permitted to approach. Slowly the hill baboons came closer to him. They sniffed at him from every angle. When he spoke to them in their own tongue they were filled with wonder and delight. They talked to him and listened while he spoke. He told them of Miriam and of their life in the jungle where they were the friends of all the ape-folk from little Manu to Mangani the great ape. The Gomangani who are keeping Miriam from me are no friends of yours, he said. They kill you. The baboons of the low country are too few to go against them. They tell me that you are very many and very brave, that your numbers are as the numbers of the grasses upon the plains or the leaves within the forest, and that even Tantor, the elephant, fears you, so brave you are. They told me that you would be happy to accompany us to the village of the Gomangani and punish these bad people, while I, Korak, the killer, carry away my Miriam. The king-ape puffed out his chest and strutted about, very stiff-legged indeed. So also did many of the other great bulls of his nation. They were pleased and flattered by the words of the strange Tarmangani, who called himself Mangani, and spoke the language of the hairy progenitors of man. "'Yes,' said one, "'we of the hill country are mighty fighters. Tantor fears us. Numa fears us. Sheeta fears us.' The Gomangani of the hill country are glad to pass us by in peace. I, for one, will come with you to the village of the Gomangani of the low places. I am the king's first he-child. Alone can I kill all the Gomangani of the low country. And he swelled his chest and strutted proudly back and forth until the itching back of a comrade commanded his industrious attention. "'I am Goob,' cried another. "'My fighting fangs are long. They are sharp. They are strong. Into the soft flesh of many a Gomangani have they been buried. Alone I slew the sister of Sheeta. Goob will go to the low country with you and kill so many of the Gomangani that there will be none left to count the dead.' and then he too strutted and pranced before the admiring eyes of the shes and the young. Korak looked at the king questioningly. "'Your bulls are very brave,' he said, "'but braver than any is the king.' Thus addressed, the shaggy bull, still in his prime, else he had been no longer king, growled ferociously. The forest echoed to his lusty challenges. The little baboons clutched fearfully at their mother's hairy necks. The bulls, electrified, leaped high in air and took up the roaring challenge of their king. The din was terrific. Korak came close to the king and shouted in his ear, 
Come!' Then he started off through the forest toward the plain that they must cross on their long journey back to the village of Kovudu, the Gomangani. The king, still roaring and shrieking, wheeled and followed him. In their wake came the handful of low-country baboons and the thousands of the hill-clan, savage, wiry, dog-like creatures, athirst for blood. And so they came, upon the second day, to the village of Kovudu. It was mid-afternoon. The village was sunk in the quiet of the great equatorial sun-heat. The mighty herd traveled quietly now. Beneath the thousands of padded feet the forest gave forth no greater sound than might have been produced by the increased soughing of a stronger breeze through the leafy branches of the trees. Korak and the two kings were in the lead. Close beside the village they halted until the stragglers had closed up. Now utter silence reigned. Korak, creeping stealthily, entered the tree that overhung the palisade. He glanced behind him. The pack were close upon his heels. The time had come. He had warned them continuously during the long march that no harm must befall the white she who lay a prisoner within the village. All others were their legitimate prey. Then, raising his face toward the sky, he gave voice to a single cry. It was the signal. In response, three thousand hairy bulls leaped screaming and barking into the village of the terrified blacks. Warriors poured from every hut. Mothers gathered their babies in their arms and fled toward the gates as they saw the horrid horde pouring into the village street. Kovudu marshaled his fighting men about him, and leaping and yelling to arouse their courage, offered a bristling spear-tipped front to the charging horde. Korak, as he had led the march, led the charge. The blacks were struck with horror and dismay at the sight of this white-skinned youth at the head of a pack of hideous baboons. For an instant they held their ground, hurling their spears once at the advancing multitude, but before they could fit arrows to their bows they wavered, gave, and turned in terrified rout. Into their ranks, upon their backs, sinking strong fangs into the muscles of their necks, sprang the baboons, and first among them, most ferocious, most bloodthirsty, most terrible, was Korak, the killer. At the village gates, through which the blacks poured in panic, Korak left them to the tender mercies of his allies and turned himself eagerly toward the hut in which Miriam had been a prisoner. It was empty. One after another the filthy interiors revealed the same disheartening fact. Miriam was in none of them. That she had not been taken by the blacks in their flight from the village, Korak knew, for he had watched carefully for a glimpse of her among the fugitives. To the mind of the ape-man, knowing, as he did, the proclivities of the savages, there was but a single explanation. Miriam had been killed and eaten. With the conviction that Miriam was dead, there surged through Korak's brain a wave of blood-red rage against those he believed to be her murderer. In the distance he could hear the snarling of the baboons mixed with the screams of their victims, and towards this he made his way. When he came upon them, the baboons had commenced to tire of the sport of battle, and the blacks in a little knot were making a new stand, using their knob-sticks effectively upon the few bulls who still persisted in attacking them. Among these broke Korak from the branches of a tree above them, swift, relentless, terrible, 
He hurled himself upon the savage warriors of Kovudu. Blind fury possessed him. Too, it protected him by its very ferocity. Like a wounded lioness he was here, there, everywhere, striking terrific blows with hard fists and with the precision and timeliness of the trained fighter. Again and again he buried his teeth in the flesh of a foeman. He was upon one and gone again to another before an effective blow could be dealt him. Yet, though great was the weight of his execution in determining the result of the combat, it was outweighed by the terror which he inspired in the simple, superstitious minds of his foemen. To them this white warrior who consorted with the great apes and the fierce baboons who growled and snarled and snapped like a beast was not human. He was a demon of the forest, a fearsome god of evil whom they had offended and who had come out of his lair deep in the jungle to punish them. And because of this belief, there were many who offered but little defense, feeling as they did the futility of pitting their puny mortal strength against that of a deity. Those who could fled, until at last there were no more to pay the penalty for a deed which, while not beyond them, they were nevertheless not guilty of. Panting and bloody, Korak paused for want of further victims. The baboons gathered about him, sated themselves with blood and battle. They lolled upon the ground, fagged. In the distance Kovudu was gathering his scattered tribesmen and taking account of injuries and losses. His people were panic-stricken. Nothing could prevail upon them to remain longer in this country. They would not even return to the village for their belongings. Instead they insisted upon continuing their flight until they had put many miles between themselves and the stamping ground of the demon who had so bitterly attacked them. And thus it befell that Korak drove from their homes the only people who might have aided him in search for Miriam, and cut off the only connecting link between him and her from whomsoever might come in search of him from the duar of the kindly Buana who had befriended his little jungle sweetheart. It was a sour and savage Korak who bade farewell to his baboon allies upon the following morning. They wished him to accompany him but the ape-man had no heart for the society of any. Jungle life had encouraged taciturnity in him. His sorrow had deepened this to a sullen moroseness that could not brook even the savage companionship of the ill-natured baboons. Brooding and despondent, he took his solitary way into the deepest jungle. He moved along the ground when he knew that Numa was abroad and hungry. He took to the same trees that harbored Sheeta the panther, he courted death in a hundred ways and a hundred forms. His mind was ever occupied with reminiscences of Miriam and the happy years that they had spent together. He realized now to the full what she had meant to him, the sweet face, the tanned, supple little body, the bright smile that always had welcomed his return from the hunt haunted him continually. Inaction soon threatened him with madness, he must be on the go, he must fill his days with labor and excitement that he might forget, that night might find him so exhausted that he should sleep in blessed unconsciousness of his misery until a new day had come. Had he guessed that by any possibility Miriam might still live, he would at least have had hope. His days could have been devoted to searching for her, 
but he implicitly believed that she was dead. For a long year he led his solitary roaming life. Occasionally he fell in with Akut and his tribe, hunting with them for a day or two, or he might travel to the hill country where the baboons had come to accept him as a matter of course. But most of all was he with Tantor the elephant, the great gray battleship of the jungle, the super-dreadnought of his savage world. The peaceful quiet of the monster bulls, the watchful solicitude of the mother cows, the awkward playfulness of the calves rested, interested, and amused Korak. The life of the huge beast took his mind, temporarily, from his own grief. He came to love them as he loved not even the great apes, and there was one gigantic tusker in particular of which he was very fond, the lord of the herd, a savage beast that was wont to charge a stranger upon the slightest provocation, or upon no provocation whatsoever. And to Korak this mountain of destruction was docile and affectionate as a lapdog. He came when Korak called. He wound his trunk about the ape-man's body and lifted him to his broad neck in response to a gesture, and there would Korak lie at full length, kicking his toes affectionately into the thick hide and brushing the flies from about the tender ears of his colossal chum with a leafy branch torn from a nearby tree by Tantor for the purpose. And all the while Miriam was scarce a hundred miles away. End of chapter 15